The following is a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. These stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello and welcome to the sixth gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 3rd of May. I'm your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure you know whether your character has blue eyes or gray eyes while you're gathered at the meeting table. <laughs> I love coming up with those each week. <laughs> Something goofy makes me laugh. Uh, it entertains me at least. To hell with everybody else. So, so I wrote blue, but my character has gray eyes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad that you get yes. that reference too. <laughs> Um, well, uh, the, the voice that you heard, we'll introduce him in just a second, but we're going to get to my partner in crime here, Glenn Bittner, the creator of the RPG Mist Runner. How are you, sir? I'm just fine and dandy. <laughs> <laughs> and Scottish. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, the voice that you heard is that of Rollin Kunz, and he is an artist and aspiring game designer, and he's the man responsible for the cover art for the Mist Runner RPG, uh, as well as many other of the interior art pieces. Uh, he has an interesting style that Glenn likes to call a mishmash of part Rob Schraub. I hope people know who Rob Schraub is, because he's a very, very interesting and creative individual. Look up Scud the Disposable Assassin and Twigger's Holiday. Just, just Google that, and, oh, yeah. and that, that'll set you on your way. Part Mike Mignola and a dash of the Muppet Show. And the reason why we've asked Rollin to join us is we're going to have him talk to us about art in games and gaming. You know, is the art necessary? Does it contribute to a better play experience? And does it affect what we buy when we decide to choose a game? Is that what really draws us in? So uh, I want to welcome you to the adventure party, Rollin. Well, uh, thank you. Very happy to be here. It's uh, it's Rollin, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> And the answer is yes, and now we're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I, I want to call out the elephant in the room. You know, uh, an event happened this week. It was very big. It's on the top of everybody's mind. It had been talked about for, for quite some time, and it finally happened. And uh, did everybody enjoy Free Comic Book Day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a, a big old stack the... Um... The comic store next to me actually over-ordered, and they had just stacks and stacks left at, at five when I got off of work, so I got a full set. Nice. Yeah. I uh, worked all day. <laughs> I, I, I stopped at uh, the Uberdork Cafe for about seven minutes before I went to work. That was my free comic book day. Oh. Did, did you score some good books? I looked at them, but I, I didn't need anything, so I left it for all the young kids coming in, so... Uh. Well, there you go. 
I actually had the opportunity to go. I was in Minneapolis uh, this weekend with my girlfriend, and we saw uh, Welcome to Night Vale. They did a live show there. And uh, while we were there, we stopped at Mead Hall. That's what it is, Mead Hall Games in Minneapolis. And they have comics and they have games. And uh, usually I get my tax return money at about that time, so I, like, separate a little bit out to splurge. And I ended up picking up Flying Frog Games... Uh, last night on Earth. Oh yeah, yeah. And, that's a good one. Comes uh, with the soundtrack. <laughs> yes, that's you know that's a really interesting thing about that that game, or their games in general, is that they come with a CD to add to the atmosphere, and uh, it's just really really amazing. And I ended up getting the uh, the the first major expansion that they offered with that too. If I could see my game shelves from here, I would tell you because I have them all. <laughs> Shoot, it's in the other room. I should have brought them in with me, but I I totally forgot. And I but I was so jazzed to go to this place, and and uh, I think that was the only Flying Frog game that they had there. They had three supplements, but I I just picked up the big one. The other two were uh, the Heroes and I think the Revenge of the Dead. Yeah, you don't really need those. Yeah, I don't think they really add that much. Oh, I was kind of wondering because they're a much smaller box. Yeah. You know, the 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 one that I picked up was the exact same size of the original game, mm-hmm. and um, the other two were much smaller, and it just looked like it had a handful of cards and some more miniatures. But I, yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah, there's. I, I think Timber Ridge <clears throat> might be the one you got, or that's one of them, and Blood in the Forest, something like that. Some of the bigger ones. Yeah. If, if uh, I may, if you end up really digging that, uh, Flying Frog actually kickstarted uh, a game called Shadows of Brimstone recently, which is like a RPG in the box. Since we're on an RPG podcast, uh, it is friggin' beautiful. Uh, it, it's a horror slash old uh, like Wild West theme, and uh, I played a character called Quick Whistle Sally that ended up gaining a prehensile tail from an evil artifact that she traded for a plasma blaster. Um, <laughs> and then she kept mutating from it, and, uh, you know... Interesting. It went south. Yes, and I, I have both of the, the big box sets for Shadows. You do? Uh, yeah. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. It was... Oh, uh, the, the uh, expansion I got was Growing Hunger. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, of course, the first one. Duh. <laughs> As you said. <laughs> Well, I was I was making an assumption because it was very large. Yes. In my head, that just made me think that that was their first major. Uh, that was the first big expansion they did. Okay. Yeah, I just I've I've really dug their products, and and this is sounding like a big ad for them. So, uh, anyways. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I'm glad everybody got to at least. Well, Glenn, you work with games every day, so. Um, yes. And you at least got to look at a couple of free comics. Yes. So that's that's all right. All right, uh, we're going to move on to the news. Uh, just a couple of items that really kind of caught Glenn and, and my attention, and we're going to roundtable them after we get to the end of them. And, Glenn, you are first up. All right. So just fresh off the truck into my store and stores all around this wonderful country, we have brand new the Temple of Elemental Evil D&D board game brought to us from WizKids. Um, those of us who are, you know, older folks like me probably remember the Temple of Elemental Evil module series 
back to the older yes. versions of D and D, it was it was a slog. It was kind of that was kind of like a test of the if you were a D and D player, you've played the Temple of Elemental Evil series. That's that was kind of like a a badge of honor you had played this. And now it's a co-op board game. It plays one to five, and you're going up against all the horrors from you know the original Temple of Elemental Evil. You've got traps and monsters trying to get as much loot as you can, and you can play either uh, there's uh, there are standalone scenarios, or there's a 13 scenario campaign that you can play through. This is also compatible with the other D&D adventure, as they call it, the D&D Adventure System Cooperative Play. Well, that's long. <laughs> uh, board games. So there was there was the Legend of Dritz and Wrath of Shardalon and uh, Ravenloft were the other ones. And this is compatible with that. You get the the nice tiles to make up the board, so you, you can throw your board together, and some the scenarios will have specific boards or tiles you use. Come with some great a great selection of minis. You get a, a nice pile of minis with it as well. Huh. Um, they they come in typical board game flavor, as in the, the minis are you know colored like you know purple and red and orange and stuff like that. <laughs> but I speak from experience with with the previous uh, renditions of the D&D board games is a little primer, and they take paint beautifully. And you can paint them up, and they're they're pretty decent minis. And that's one of the things I like about this game and the other D and D board games is that one, it's a game by itself. You can play the game, you can have fun with it, and the fact that it's one player for someone like me who, outside of the store, I don't often have people that I can play games with uh, if I'm not there. So I like the I like the solo games that I can play. But you also get you get all these minis that you can use, and you can port that over to any fantasy RPG game you play, like Pathfinder, D and D, whatever. Here's, you know, 30, 40, 50 more minis, you know, to add to that stockpile that you already have. And you're probably going to get a couple of monsters you might not have already had in mini form. I, I like these games a lot. They're, they're, they're pretty cool. Like I said, they, they flesh out just your, your RPG collection as far as, you know, the, those accessories go. Because the, the game tiles can be used in a regular game. It's just a nifty system that they have. And, yeah, and there's a lot of re- replayability with it as well. And for me, you know, it's I, I remember my first time through Temple of Elemental Evil as a player, and I probably ran, I don't know, 30 or 40 people through it over the years. Oof. And it was one of my favorite. I mean, looking back, there's there's a lot of flaws with that. I mean, it, 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 it was very much an older school D&D-style adventure where a lot of the layout makes no sense. And that's the, hey, here's just room after room after room of monsters just waiting for you to stumble into them. <laughs> Kill them and take their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Here's a ten by ten room with twenty bugbears in it, armed with pole arms. Oh well, how are they moving? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, but you know, it's it's a lot of the older D modules. That's what they were. They they were they were hack and slash fest. That's what it was. Role playing was meant you were rolling your dice a lot. <laughs> No, absolutely. Oh, and if you actually, somebody was telling me that they played a character, they managed to play it like most of the way through and got ridiculous levels on their character. Yep. They, like leveled the character up to at least like 10 or 12 or something. Oh, yeah. You're, you you went up a lot of levels in the Temple of Elemental Evil if you lived. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I've seen the box of this new version, and I've played the old, I've played Drizzt and uh, I think Shardalon. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the first yep. one? Yeah. So, the, have you have you dug into it at all? Have you gotten to, to crack it open? I have. I have been able to crack it open. We just got them in on Friday. 
I'm able to crack crack it open yet, you know, and actually get a really good look at what's inside. I mean, it looks from from what I've seen of the box and you know, from what I've read from Wizard uh, Wiz Kids and from Wizard of the Coast because it's the two of them you know together because it is D and D. It looks fairly fairly similar to the other ones that they have already released as far as you know the the components that come in the box. Is it uh? Are they still doing that? Uh, I know they had that conversion of chainmail kind of thing where where they had they, you get an army. It's you know one versus one, and it was compatible with those games too. Like you could take the units. What was that called? That was Dungeon Command. Dungeon Command. Is that Dungeon, is that dead? I don't I don't think so because Dungeon Command is pretty much a dead system for them. Okay. All right. They they released their like six packs for that, and nobody wanted it. And it died, which made me sad because it was it was a it was an, a decent game by itself. It wasn't a great game, but it was a decent game. Yeah. But then again, you got and that one you had the pre-painted minis. You got like you know a dozen or so minis. Um, some that you normally I mean one of them came with an Umber Hulk, and I mean I can't remember the last time I really actually had an Umber Hulk mini. <laughs> Not much call for that. No, but it's cool to have one. Yeah. No, like, I would. I got an Umber Hulk. When we talk about the miniatures for this game, are they like twenty-eight millimeter, like the scale of like regular miniatures, yeah, or a little bit yeah, smaller? Yeah, they're, they're the regular scale. Okay. Wow. And when I was at when I was at that game shop, the Meat Hall in, in Minneapolis, I did stumble across a couple boxes of this, and I wasn't really sure what the deal was. Have you and you, what what kind of feedback have you been getting from people on this? Not a lot yet, because it's because it's so new. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you had a chance to like play it in the store and demo it for people. No, uh, we, we actually we were only able to get two copies in at my store. So oh, okay. When, yeah. when we get so few copies, we don't like to open it up in case someone comes in and you know wants it, and I'd be like, "Sorry, it's in my demo library. You can't have it." <laughs> no, it makes sense. Okay, all right. Well, we'll move on to the next story. I make no secret of the fact that I do enjoy Paizo. And I uh, found this story about Paizo. Uh, they've released the Pathfinder role-playing game Pathfinder Unchained. And it's a book that actually goes through and takes a look at the core classes and some of the core monsters and some of the spells and just kind of looks at everything and the stuff that was broken. They took some time to try to fix it up. And... Uh, for, this is from uh, from their website, from their, their PR. Get ready to shake up your game. Within these pages, the designers of the Pathfinder role-playing game unleash their wildest ideas and nothing is safe. From totally revised fundamentals like core classes and monster design to brand new systems for expanding the way you play, this book offers fresh ideas while still blending with the existing system. Uh, with Pathfinder Unchanged, you become the game designer. Pathfinder Unchained is an indispensable companion for the Pathfinder role-playing game core rulebook. This imaginative tabletop... Blah, blah, blah. All right, here's what it actually does. Uh, New versions of the Barbarian, Monk, Rogue, and Summoner classes... Have have you guys... I'm going to stop right here. Have you guys played Pathfinder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Has anybody found a really good use for a Summoner? (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I rest. I rest my case. All right. Hopefully, this fixed the summoner and made it worth a damn. 
all revised to make them more balanced and easier to play. Well, for the summoner class, anything would be better. Uh, the new skill options for both those who want more skills to fill out their characters' backgrounds and those seeking streamlined systems for speed and simplicity. Changes to how combat works from a revised action system to an exhaustive list of combat tricks to draw upon your character's stamina. Magic items that power up with you throughout your career. That'd be nice. Uh, and ways to maintain variety while still letting players choose the best magic items. Simplified monster creation rules for making new creatures on the fly. Ooh, that's nice. Uh, exotic material components ready to supercharge your spell casting. It sounds like a used car salesman. <laughs> what can I do to put you in a role-playing game today? <laughs> for only $59.99. No. New takes on alignment multi-classing iterative attacks, wounds, diseases, and poisons, and item creation. I'm really interested in the the items that power up with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's I what mean, stuck out for me, too. So often you, you play something and you get to, like, level 3, and you're like, oh, I got this wand, and it's pretty kick-ass, and then you get to, like, level 7, and you're like, eh, well, whatever. Garbage um, item. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's something that you trade in another town for, you know, a couple of gold pieces after it's been like a workhorse for you and you found somebody desperately trying to get this thing recharged and you get it recharged and then later on it's like, eh, it's a paperweight. Um, <laughs> it's always kind of sad. Or you end up finding somebody in the group who gets, you know, like craft magic item and can actually try to try to beef it up for a price, but it doesn't do it automatically. How do you guys feel about these proposed changes? I mean, I think I've kind of made my opinion <laughs> fairly clear on certain things in the game, but but what do you guys uh, what do you guys feel about this? We'll start so, with you, Roland. Oh, okay. So, uh, have have you guys been playing Fifth Edition D and D or no? I'm just kidding. yes, not yeah. yet. A little not bit. Yet. Okay. Well, uh, if I may gush about Fifth Edition D and D a little bit. Oh, um, go ahead. <laughs> so I've been playing 1.5 to three times a week in different sessions, and uh, for a in seven months, and I, I love about it that they kind of scaled down the magic items. They made them super big events. So if you get any sort of magic item, it's just, uh, you know, I have a wand of web. Oh my gosh, my character is that much more awesome now. <laughs> um, but so I'm really interested, actually, in, in the idea that a magic item levels up with you, because... I, I did notice with Pathfinder that it, you get these items a little bit more like candy. You know what I mean? Like it, you're, you're expected to have a whole arsenal uh, depending on your level. And it's not just Pathfinder. I mean, that's 3rd edition D&D, you know. So yeah. it, that, that's a thing that's existed up until 5th edition D&D for the most part. I mean, 2nd edition maybe had a little bit less of that going on. Wait, not as I recall. That was no? That was always... It well, I guess the thing is, when I started playing, I started playing in second edition. So uh -huh. anything that happened to me in second edition was new and shiny and awesome. Um, but I always <laughs> felt like that I always had a magic item of some sort. They weren't necessarily rare. And I think that might have been part of the appeal is, okay, you're playing a fantasy game and you have a magic item and you have multiple magic items now. And I think that was part of the deal. And I think... Like with what you're saying, maybe the the approach with fifth edition was to try to change things up so that it was a big deal if you got something. Yeah, I, I, I make it shiny again. 
I like, um, I mean, I, I don't want to say realism, because that's not what it is, but uh, <laughs> but just, you know, putting a lot of weight in in the, the magic system in general. You know, like, this, this your, your heroes and co- the common folk are not going to have a leather armor plus one. They just won't. It's magic, you know? So, you know, I, I can dig that, and I, and I actually do really... I, I'm guessing, I guess this is the part that I like about it, I'm guessing that Paizo is going to be making these items rarer as they make them, you know, level up with you because you don't need to constantly change your arsenal. That would be interesting because I, like, I am playing a witch character in a high-level, basically it's a villain's campaign uh, in, in Pathfinder, and I've taken it upon myself to be the person that can craft stuff. So whenever we get into town, it's like everybody's going to go look at stuff and they're going to check things out and I'm slaving away over an anvil, you know, beefing <laughs> up somebody's sword or something like that. Um, and they paid dearly for that service, I'll tell you that right now. Um, and I had a, well, I, yeah, I had because it exploded uh, in a battle, but I had a, a golem. <sighs> Crap. And he's been dead now for a while, but he wasn't scaling up anymore. So it's like, oh, well, if you want to scale one up, you just need to build a new one. So uh-huh. I mean, I've got the plans to make one, but I need 30 days to craft this cannon golem. <laughs> <laughs> and who's in town that long just screwing around 30 whole days? So, yeah, I don't know what's what's going to happen with that. So, so having something that would just scale up would be brilliant. I would I would love that. Is, is that built entirely of cannons? <laughs> um, the well, it, like the arms are basically cannons, and it has like a it looks like a chain pulley system to so that it can move the arms up and down and and whatnot. And I figured I would do something like that because I have a witch character, which is basically support and hexing and and stuff in the background. So it was I wanted to have a bodyguard of sorts. So. That, that was just sort of... So, <laughs> it's a, like, a guy with cannons for arms is your idea of a, of a, of a bodyguard. Okay, that works. <laughs> well, it's nice to be able to... Well, with the... Uh, with the oh, God, now I can't remember what type of golem he was. Uh, he was in, like an elemental golem. Shoot, I can't remember. He had the ability when he attacked and it was random, whether it would be acid, electricity, fire, or ice. Hmm. And it's a uh, it's semi intelligent it's intelligent enough to take direction, so it it had some human components to it, organic human components to it, yeah. So, but it just never scaled up, and it got to a point where I was more powerful than it. It was nice to have something to stand behind and give me you know give me cover. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, like I said, it didn't scale up, so. You know, the the next thing I have to do is spend thirty days and build the next generation of this this particular item. So, eh. someone needs a montage. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Just video of me slaving away in the blacksmith shop and then the alchemist's <laughs> lab and whipping everything up. Uh, in because essentially Pathfinder is version three five. Do we all pretty much revile version four of of D and D? I don't revile it. I mean, what what do you think, Glenn? What, how do you feel? I I didn't. Well, as as someone who's played D and D's from, I mean, I started in the late 1970s, so I've been playing a long time. It it didn't feel like D and D to me. 
Yeah. It, it felt more like I was playing a video game without the cool graphics. <laughs> yeah. The cool graphics are in your mind, man. <laughs> yes, but, but and I and I, I felt in Fourth Edition combat seemed to take forever. Yeah, that was the big. I mean, guess. the first time I played, now I, I only played three times total because I just couldn't anymore. Yeah, the first combat I had, it was it was a party of four against three goblins, and that took like an hour and a half. Yeah, I'm like, oh my, oh really? That, yeah. Oh. It just yep. took forever because it's just it, I don't know, it just it, it it took a lot of things that I felt were work well in video games and said we're going to do this on a tabletop. The problem is that in a video game you have a high-powered processor to do all this stuff for you so you don't have to dig through and and you can just simply, oh yeah, that's quick slot 5. Boom, done. All right. Next attack. You know, and it's it said you're you're going through and it just didn't seem they were there. I think they were just they were trying to appeal to people who play the video games and trying to pull that yeah. crowd in to get new players. Now, well, that in that regard, sense, yeah. it worked. It worked well in that regard. People who had not played D and D before but had played some of the computer RPGs, they went in pretty seamlessly. But I think Fifth Edition now has taken in. It's they fixed a lot of things that I think were wrong with three five and made it easier for new players. I think I think it's an incredibly easy system to get into but still having a fair amount of depth. It's my, my biggest criticism with Pathfinder is that is the same thing I felt with 3.5 is after a while, it just started feeling so... There are so many, oh, well, do you have, you know, Barbarian uh, Super Skill Book number 8? Because, you know, now you can... I was like, I don't want to keep track of that much different stuff. I like my games to be more much more focused on the world and less focused on the, you know, 788 different feats for summoners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it, but but that's me. I I know there are people who they they want every source book out there because they they want it, you know, I mean, one obviously your min maxers want it. They definitely want it because you know, they want to find that that perfect combination that lets them well with these two skills to these two feats together, I get 70 to taxi round. You know? <laughs> yep. And that's what they're looking for. You're right. I am. <laughs> 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 okay, so that's the thing. Fourth edition, you're right, completely combat focused, and and fifth edition, it just blows it out of the water in every way because you don't have to play it that way. You can be combat focused. You can do it completely theater of the mind too. But fourth edition also added a few cool ideas. You know, like they um, they added things like second wind, and with short rests, you could regenerate your hit points instead of having to wait six weeks or whatever to get back to full without magic assistance, and they added, uh, you know, a couple of extra little things like that. And 5th edition kept the good ideas like that. Yes. You know, they, they, they kept the good stuff. They mostly put them in the fighter class, and they're just like, okay, so if you want to play 4th edition, you can be the fighter. But what they did wrong was they... Really what made those combats draw out so long uh, was they gave every class its own spell book, basically. They, yeah. they made a fighter able to hit someone and then hit another person, and then you could push that person four squares, and then you you know it's a oh, yeah, they, and, and yeah, they, 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 they gave them the skill trees that you got you get in like Skyrim and and like final the Final Fantasy games where it's the okay now I'm gonna go to the mega power f- flower tree skill tree and over <laughs> here I'm gonna pull these yeah that was a big part of it but 
I don't know. I mean, from what I played of Pathfinder, I've enjoyed it. I, you know, because I enjoyed 3.5. And if, I mean, if you like 3.5, I don't see how you could say Pathfinder's stupid, which oh, I've yeah, heard yeah. people say, which I'm just like, you obviously don't have a brain that can go from point A to point B. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, like some of this stuff, I mean, I personally would not use a lot of the stuff that's in this thing. But I know people who would use a lot of it. Um, and the thing I do like is, yeah, I, I like the, the simplified monster creation because I like just creating monsters when I feel like it. Mm-hmm. And if there's a little rule set that helps me make the monster a little more balanced, that's good because, you know, I might make something up and be like, oh, yeah, it, should, it shouldn't it should do 48 damage per attack. That's a bit too much when I'm yeah, playing little characters. <laughs> I, so I wonder what the simplified monster creation is because up until now, my simplified monster creation has been... Uh, oh, oh, shoot, I need a, a leprechaun real quick. Okay, uh, it's a goblin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Well, that's, that's how I, I always did it, too. When I, when I make stuff up, I would take an existing monster and just say, all right, well, this thing would be stronger than an orc, but it would also be smarter, but it would be a lot slower because it's fat. And I would just basically <laughs> just change a couple of things based off that. I would pull existing monsters and be like, what is this most like? That's what I'll use as a base and maybe just make it, you know, well, it's smarter than this or it's dumber than this or, you know, it's pink instead of, you know, gray. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, it'll be interesting. I'm actually looking to get this in the next couple of weeks here, so I will be able to report back with a little bit more information. We'll, we'll post that in, in an upcoming episode and uh, chit-chat about that. Well, next up, we're going to have uh, Galactic Gaming News from Ryan Murphy, and he's a regular contributor to Galactic Netcasts, and he covers more of the digital beat of gaming, and he's got an update for us, so take it away, Ryan. Welcome to Galactic Gaming News for the week of April 28th. I'm your host, Ryan Murphy. Let's take a look at the headlines from out of this world. First up, we have Total War Warhammer. It's all in cap. Anyways, it shows the original Green Men. Are you familiar with the science fiction franchise Warhammer 40k? Well, if you're a fan of the long, 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 long time ago, you're going to dig Total War Warhammer. I'm not going to yell it again. Uh, Once is enough. Announced late last week and leaked months ago in an art book, this Total War spin-off game from Creative Assembly and Sega will be based on the popular Warhammer franchise. Take part in epic battles on PC in the very near future. Now this is an interesting partnership because Sega purchased Relic, the guys behind most of the Warhammer, the great Warhammer games, and they already own Creative Assembly, the folks behind the fantastic franchise Total War, and they're smashing them together. It'll be really interesting to see what we can do. The trailer, which appears to be part CG cutscene and hopefully gameplay, uh, or at least what the gameplay will look like. The Total War franchise is something I've always been interested in getting into, and I'm thinking now that we're not dealing with like Romans and old school spears and arrows and, and getting into the fantasy, I might actually have to play this game. Black Ops 3 is happening. As if you were surprised. Treyarch and Activision are back in black. This November, that's their marketing tagline. I I wouldn't have wrote, that's, that joke's even bad for me. Uh, it's out this November with the sequel to 2012's well-received Black Ops 2. The future appears to be filled with robot soldiers, robot limbs, and soldiers 
who battle to copy as many traversal techniques as they can from Titanfall. Seriously, this could easily be mistaken for Titanfall 2 with all the wall running and whatnot. I, I, for one, believe we will get a Titanfall 2 announcement at E3, but I highly doubt we'll have that game come out at the end of this year. I'd, I'd see it coming out probably March 2016, so it's crazy that we might have both of those games coming out around the same time. Crazy. Finally, we have our science fiction release of the week. The second half of Broken Age is out right now. Now, I know some of you might look at the screenshots and say that that's not a science fiction game. However, half of the game does take place on a spaceship. So, gotcha there. Remember Double Fine's Kickstarter from 2012? Well, if you don't, I won't blame you, as that was a long time ago. <laughs> but finally, on April 28th, 2015, Broken Age is complete. If you own Broken Age on Steam or iOS, you can now update to play part two. I, for one, cannot wait to dig into the second half of this point-and-click adventure. The writing is superb, the music is fantastic, and it's one of those few games that will make you laugh. And that's no joke. Well, this has been Galactic Gaming News, a weekly segment for Galactic Netcasts. For everything I do, go to ryanmurphy.ca or follow me on Twitter at rmurphy. If you're interested in more video game goodness, be sure to check out The Gamers In at gamersinpodcast.com. Each week, Jocelyn Moffat and I run down the games we've been playing, chat industry news, and take questions or comments from listeners like you. Thanks for listening. All right, thanks for that report, Ryan. Appreciate it. Next up, we're going to talk about the Kickstarter Spotlight, and we are going to do a recap of last meeting's Kickstarter, and that was the Titan series, and that's the one that uh, Glenn brought to us. And, oh, they're so close. They're about 23,000 away from reaching their goal. And the Titans of Gaming is like a whole bunch of games. We're looking at 11 games once a year, delivered over three years. That's incredible. And if they meet this and actually start going into their stretch goals, there's even more games that would be delivered. But by some of the greats, Richard Garfield, I'm trying to see some names here that I really recognize. Well, Garfield, James Ernest. Yeah. And, what, and, and James, James did which one again? Uh, he's killing, he's cheap ass games. Killer yeah. Lucky, yes. Lords of Ace, okay. Lord of yep. the Fries. That's right. Yeah. Trying to think who else is another the one. Wise, the, the Wiseman's Jordan and Zach. I mean, you're there you're talking Battletech, Mech Warrior, Hero Click, Shadowrun, Gollum Arcana, Mage Knight. I mean, they're in a lot, they've done a lot of stuff like that. And uh, Mike Selinker, if I'm oh, even, yeah. it, even right, but he's Betrayal at House in the Hill. Yes. God, I love that game. Yeah. So it's, it's like game. every everyone's favorite games, all of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, you look at the list of the games these, these people have worked on. I mean, it's just everything. I mean, Warriors. Yeah. Uh, the the new XCOM. When did XCOM yeah. come out? Last month? Uh, no, it's been out for about two months. Okay, okay. Officially, have, have like, you played buy it in a store. I haven't played it yet. I have it. I bought it because I'm like, it's XCOM. I've watched it played. It's, sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's pretty challenging. Uh, it uh, is. I, yeah, it, it gives me a heart attack. It's like uh, uh, something alert. What is it called? Space alert? Is that the oh, one? Oh, yeah. Real time? Yeah. 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 It's basically like Space Alert where I, I just love the way this game is designed and it makes me just the most anxious to play it. I cannot. I mean, I, I do it, but... Uh. <laughs> you also need to try Samurai Spirit. 
that is a kind of like a the Seven Samurai, you know, Kira Kurosawa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a group of samurai protecting this village from bandits. It's a co-op game. I don't know how people win this game. <laughs> it is so brutal. It is so brutally hard. I, every time I've played, we've lost. It, oh, is wow. it real time? No, but it doesn't matter. It, it it could be take a week to figure out your moves. You're still gonna lose. <laughs> oh wow! But it's my favorite game designer, so I have to have it and I have to play it. <laughs> Well, the uh, the Titan series has got 26, at least at, at this point in time on May 3rd, it's got 26 days left to go. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that it's going to get funded here. I think that's fairly safe to say at this point. Uh, it's got 876 backers at this point in time. I think it's going to go. So that's where that one's at. And the new one that we're going to talk about is Lord of the Dead, an asymmetrical hex and counter micro game. You know, I looked at this right. and I thought, one, wow, that's a really huge mouthful to try to say. But two, it's tiny. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna go on a trip or something like that, this would be something perfect that would just kind of fit in in your backpack or whatever. Going to go through the write-up here. Lord of the Dead is a tribute to the classic hex and counter micro games of the 70s and yeah. 80s, such as uh, Chitin One. Rivets and Ice War. In this game, you play an evil Lord of the Dead with vast necromantic powers or a mob of common folk and farmers who have been alerted to his approach. Your object as the Lord of the Dead is to fight your way through the village and reach the cemetery where you can raise an undead army. Your object as the townsfolk is to stop the villain from defiling your ancestral burial grounds and raising up his horrifying army. Uh, this, you know, we're going to have a link to this in the show notes for, for those of you that are listening. In this setup, you get the rules, obviously. You get the hex map. There's a tiny map, and I say tiny because it, it just looks like, I mean, there's, like, there's individual pieces. It's, it folds up. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can easily pop that somewhere and just take it with you wherever. And I have to tell you, Brad. Is, yeah? I'm having a gamegasm right now. <laughs> <laughs> I... I absolutely loved the mini hex games when I was a kid, and I still have one of the ones. I have. I still have the creature that ate Shibuya. Nice. Still have. I drooled over those things when the first time I saw them, and I tried my damnedest to get everyone I could as a kid. And of course, when I was young, I was stupid and I lost chits and all that stuff. But yeah, this this has me so excited because I love these games because as you said, it's the. I mean, this fits in your back pocket practically. The goal for this game was nine hundred dollars, <laughs> and they they have achieved over six thousand dollars. <laughs> so this thing is a go with twenty one days left as of May third. They've gotten six thousand dollars though, like eight dollars at a time. I mean wow. that if if you want in, if you want a copy of this micro game, eight bucks gets you in. Nine dollars if you're from somewhere outside of the United States. That that's ridiculously cheap. All the other major uh, pledge levels were fifty bucks, and those are gone. I don't see. I don't. They do have some stretch goals. They've unlocked everything that they've put up so far. Oh no, they've got some no, new ones. No, up they've now. got some new ones now. Yep, the die cut Lord of the Dead expansion, upgraded basic artwork. Nice. That kind of fits into our topic. And if they break ten thousand three hundred. Uh, upgraded expansion artwork. Can I ask what you get for 50 bucks, or what you did? Well, what you did, uh, 
Let's go through this real quick because it's it's beautiful. Name the necromancer. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, at fi at, there's several. At fifth, yeah. you can name the necromancer. You can name the shadow wraith. You can name the lich king, or you can name the demon lord. That's awesome. Fifty bucks. Put your name in in a game. That's that's really cool. But you can't because they're all gone. Yep, right. all of them are gone now. Sorry, listeners. This, this, <laughs> I have. I, I'm impressed with the fact that I think they set a realistic budget for you know, which what is obviously a, a very small print type game. Yeah. But the the backers. I mean, it's the fact that you know you can only get so much with it. So they don't have you know 50 different tiers like you see with some games where you get all these special things. This is. Yeah. Eight bucks gets you the game, and if you're one of the first people to spend fifty, you have to name a creature in it, and that's it. Yeah, actually, uh, while we're talking about this, I'm backing it right now because mm. I want a copy of this. Yep, I just I just <laughs> flagged the reminder so I can do it later because I have to change the credit card I had for Kickstarter has expired. I need to change it to a new one. <laughs> well, <laughs> thankfully, call the bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need more than that. Give me a new card. <laughs> I need to stop calling. There we go. I'm in. All right. So uh, that's the first time we've had a meeting here of the adventure party where I've just gone in and uh, supported a game. Boom. Okay. Hey, now that I'm back and focused on everything here, um, I wow. This, this it just it's so cool uh, to be able to to take something that and I've said it before, just to have something so portable and to just pull that out and just start playing a game. That's just awesome. I think this is the first time I've seen a game that cheap. Well, but I, I'm just saying for me, for <laughs> on here, this is the first time I've seen. I haven't seen a cheap ass thing be funded on here yet. But um, now, now I'm now I'm perusing Kickstarter a lot more now that we've started doing Adventure Party. So I'm sure I'll see it again. But this, it's the first time for me to. It's it's my first time. Be gentle. And gosh, I can't I can't remember how many players it supported. Frankly, I didn't care. I just wanted it. Let's take a look at this real well, quick. I know one of the stretch goals is unlock solo play. Okay. Ooh. That's so, worth it. Well, you think Eight bucks been... to play with yourself. <laughs> Normally I'd do it for free. Wait, what? <laughs> you know, this is such a tight formation on the map. I mean, everything... It, it looks like almost like an, a legal-sized sheet of paper, like from a notepad. In in size, I think I think that that looks fairly accurate, at least proportionally. And you've got your full map on there of of the town, uh, surrounding areas, and where the grave is, and then you've got the the different placements of where you can put up your defenses and where the monsters are, and so on. And you mark your turn tracker. Yeah, everything is just compact and right in one place. That's just. Absolutely gorgeous. All right, I'm done drooling now. Anybody else have something to say about this awesome game? <laughs> All right, we'll call it good. Just that I can't wait to have it. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, looks like it's due out in June. Yes, in June. So oh, next month. Yes. Yeah, quick turnaround. Dang. But, you know, when you don't have a whole lot of... You don't have to go through some company in China to press out pieces or whatnot. It's all... Okay can be printed in the states here so that turnaround time is right there very cool all right well since we were starting to talk there about artwork uh we've brought Rollin in here to talk about uh, the, the role of art in games 
what is its purpose? Does it draw us into to purchase it? Does it convey the mood of what the game is supposed to be? You know, if you're going to have a game about horror, do you put clowns on it? Um, or if you do, do they have, do they have pointy blood-covered teeth? How do you properly convey a mood of a game and, and talk about the specifics of, if I'm a designer, how do I kind of pass along that information to an artist to, to try to get the, the art that's going to work for this project? So let's, let's start with the, the basic question here is, how important do you feel art is when it comes to game design? So uh, I have two answers for this. Uh, incredibly and not at all. Um, <laughs> okay. So uh, a few years ago, I, I interned a little while with this game designer, Peggy Brown. She's, she's super prolific, and we've never heard of her because she does all of this, like, Hasbro, Mattel, Fisher-Price stuff. It's all these party games, right? But, I mean, she's had hundreds of designs published, right? And, uh, and obviously she knows what she's doing as far as uh, inventing games and creating game design. She's, and she's like, one of make... the titans. Oh, oh she okay. is? Ooh. Yes. All right, we're, we're, there's a little callback there. That's excellent. <laughs> uh, we're going to call back to James Ernest for sure, too. So uh, what she taught me about art when you're designing a game is that you just use whatever you have on hand. You, don't, you spend as little time on it as possible, get little plastic bits that work for the little plastic bits you need, uh, draw on postcards for cards, you know, just, like, get go to the dollar store, take whatever shortcuts you can in order to get your design up and actually functional, you know, up and running so you can start playtesting it. And that, that makes a, a ton of sense. It's the same technique that you use, like, programmer art, which uh, programmer art being the placeholder art that a programmer will insert into an, an in-production video game while things like specific game mechanics are being locked down, you know? So... This, this art for these different little bits and pieces, they just have to have the same physical properties as the art that the art team is currently making. It doesn't matter how it looks. So, so uh, you know, your little chit has to have the right number on it and it has to be the right size, that kind of thing, right? So when you look at it that way while you're designing it, it's just completely inconsequential. You do not need, like, art does not matter at all. However, as an artist... There's another side to that coin. So w when we're talking about art in games, we're talking about a few different types of art. We've got uh, the big, blown-out, beautiful illustration pieces that act as book covers, basically. So they're going to go on the outside of the box and the front of the manual, and their job is to catch people's eyes on the shelves and get them to you know, pick up the box uh, so that the flavor text can take over and invite them further, and then uh, Glenn or myself can walk by and say, yep, that's a good one, and, and then they buy it, right? So uh, those, obviously, they don't need to be finished or even started for the game design process. Most of the time, when you're pitching a game to a publisher, you don't have that art because you're not an artist, right? And, of course, it's super helpful if you are an artist and you can, like, produce that yourself, but it doesn't happen often. So next, we, we have the component art, which is how tokens look, uh, the forms of the tiny plastic figurines we all drool over, all that good stuff. And those are also pretty much largely unimportant when you're developing it, uh, developing a game, except that they need to be very physically similar to the final components. Like, we don't want to design like a game like Disc Wars. Anyone play Disc Wars? Oh, yeah. 
It, okay, so the, in Disc Wars, you basically have a... It, it's a turn-based war game, and all your different units are different-sized pogs, and uh, whenever you move the pogs, you're flipping them end over end. And so the size of the pog matters a lot, in addition to the numbers and things that are on that pog, right? Sure. So you don't want to develop that all with one size or the wrong size of pogs and then get to the production phase and find that the game plays completely differently once it's produced because you, uh, you know, you, you're flipping a unit and you're not moving as much because it doesn't, it's not the same size and the game balance will actually change, right? Okay. Um, so, but then, of course, on the other side of that, there are games that are completely based around their components like, uh, and this is less RPG and more things like Suspend or Talk Talk Woodman or Qubits or Jenga, you know, like the more physical games where you'll, you'll be moving little bits and pieces around and those components are the game. Like, they're really important. They're all about the design. If you don't have the exact same thing b- between design and production, you aren't, you, you know, you designed a different game and they produced a different game. So... You know, there's that, all right? That's the the second type of art. And then the last case is perhaps the most interesting to look at and think about, and that's the the graphic design of the game. And you actually touched on this a little bit when you were talking about uh, that game that you just kickstarted, how it's it's beautifully laid out in one sheet, you know, and everything is just laid out in front of you and super clear, and and it, it needs to be on that one sheet because... Uh, it's meant to fit in your back pocket. And James Ernest did some other games that are like this, like hip pocket games, he called them, where, where you, you just, everything that you need fits into one little space. Or one of the best ones, Button Men. Oh, yeah, Button Men, where it's actually just buttons, just like button. buttons <laughs> that you wear, and then other people can see uh, that you are a Button Man player, and uh, and you can all of a sudden bust that out. You know, and just I love that. Uh, James Ernest is by and far my favorite designer, even though, you know, there are things like Dungeons and Dragons, which I play a lot more. He's just friggin' brilliant with the way that he combines design with an intelligent use of the mechanics to uh, uh, abstract, abstractify, what do you want to... Is it just abstract? He takes physical things and abstracts them into gameplay, right? Okay. So when I'm talking about graphic design, I'm not talking so much about the layout of the manual, or anything like that, although that's important too. I mean, you, you can look at uh, Epic Spell Wars of the Battle Wizards, which is currently now blowing up because of Tabletop, and is an amazing game, especially when you, you're in more of a casual mood. It has a terrible manual because they use, like, 16 different fonts. Ugh. It's all yes. in a cluster, you know? And, it, and it's just, they don't organize it right. The manual is yeah. terrible. The game is great. Luckily, it's pretty intuitive. So... I'm not worried about that so much, but the design of a, a character sheet or a board layout can make a huge difference in how the game plays, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. yep. So James Ernest Cheap-Ass Games, uh, these are games that he designed to work with mostly generic components so that a person could buy one nice set of components, keep them forever, spend five to ten bucks on the new bits, right? Whenever they want a new game. And, and I think that's, like, a really brilliant way to show, I guess, that art can be super important to the game design process. I'm actually I'm working on a game of my own that follows his strategy. I'm copying him. Nice. Uh, not, not his particular game. It's called Heavenly Immortal Monkey King. And <laughs> uh, I'm happy to say that it requires almost no 
specially printed components, meaning I'll be able to supply people with digital print-and-play versions that are equivalent to the versions I print up for stores. Um, As I designed it, I found the only art component that I actually had to break down and design before I started playtesting it was the character sheet. And that's the the graphic design portion. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's the part that is going to matter for game design. So in my game, the character sheet functions as like a, a player's personal board and score sheet during the game. And without it, the game would not work at all. So uh, everything else, though, is replaceable with similar components. You can use uh, whatever dice you have. You can use marbles for bits and pieces. You can use rocks if you just have rocks. That's great. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, so and, and those are the two sides. They it can be incredibly important, or it can just not matter at all. It does kind of depend on the game. Okay. So when we talk about art in games. And I always, I remember when I bought my first copy of the Player's Handbook for second edition D&D. And the thing that I really dug about it was that the art itself was kind of an anthology. It was a, a collection of different artists. And its purpose was to highlight something that was written on that that particular page that it appears on to kind of give a visual representation of not only of what the thing is, but about the setting that you're working in. So you're going to see, let's say, like in in Pathfinder, and if you're looking through the spell section uh, of the the core book, you're going to see somebody either casting or being affected by a particular spell that shows up on that page. And the nice thing about that that I thought was that if you read an instruction manual for a washing machine... It's boring as hell. And yeah, there are a couple of diagrams in there, but the nice thing about art in a in a book is that it breaks things up. It helps it to read better. It gives you, a, a, I don't know, a primer for your mind's eye for the, the setting for that particular game that you're in. At least that's the way I've kind of perceived that. Would you Would you agree or... Oh I'm, yeah, I'm throwing that out to the both of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. In fact, I, I mean, as a kid, reading Dungeons and Dragons manuals and Warhammer catalogs and codices and uh, even certain like video game manuals, things like that. That's what made me want to pursue art as a career. You know, I mean, uh, that's kind of what developed me into the person that I am. So I think super important to have art. Uh, in the midst of especially these high-text, super-dense, you know, completely full of rules, manuals that RPGs tend to be. Glenn, what are your thoughts? Oh, as someone who made a role-playing game book, I mean, I think the art was an essential part of the overall thing. Roland may agree because he got paid for some of it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And incredibly, he gave me an incredibly reasonable rate for art. RPG, but it, it, it breaks up those huge blocks of text for one. Two, it helps create that feel for at least at least what the original idea behind like the world or you know or the game is. You know, you have you have at least have an idea of what the creators were thinking when they made this game of what the world is like, what the people who populated are like, what the creatures are like. Because you have their their versions, their images, and you are 
trapped into using those images. You know, if, if you think that a troll looks different than what a D&D troll looks like because you grew up reading Norse mythology like I did, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. But it's cool to see different interpretations of creatures as well and to see how things might look in that world. I mean, some of my favorite stuff, which is... I have lots of characters. I mean, almost all the artists are characters. It's, it's people. It's creatures. And I have very, very little that is scenery. Yeah. And that's always some of my favorite art in RPGs is seeing the locations. You know, seeing that castle on a mountaintop or, you know, or, or this, you know, ship flying through the sky. That's the stuff that I really love in that type of stuff. And it really, that really gives you a feel for the world when you, can, when you see these marvels that, you know, exist in these, in these places. And I think that's, that's where art really, because you can describe a mountaintop fortress and people can picture in their head, but to see a picture of it, that just that makes it that much more real, you know, in a fictional, in a fictional game. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I know we're talking mostly about RPGs, but that's not just for RPGs. That's for oh, any no. game. Like if you if you see that big beautiful cover of, for example, last night on Earth, that's going to immediately say, okay, so I am in not just a zombie setting. I am in a like campy. 80s horror movie zombie setting, you know? Yeah. Like it, you're there. From the time you open that box, because you've seen this big, beautiful thing and you bought it because of this big, beautiful thing, you are going to, you know, have, your mind's going to be in that setting, basically. Yeah. It's a whole deal. Well, it's like a yeah, and there's, another game is, uh, there's one that I've been playing recently called Abyss, which is a uh, card game, card, cardboard game. There's a board you play on, but it's car, all card-driven. <laughs> All I knew about the game when I bought it, I knew that it was it's not really a deck builder, but it's it's kind of you're collecting specific cards. That's all I knew about it. Aside from that, I knew the artwork is beautiful. It is probably some of the most stunning artwork I have seen in a board game. It's a game about this undersea kingdom, the throne's up for grabs, and you're all competing for it. So you've got to recruit different lords as allies and different creatures and stuff like that. And the art just... It's it's incredibly well done, and I described it the other day to someone. I, I said, it looks like the type of place that Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy would just show up at any moment. <laughs> okay. That that was a game where I bought it almost solely based on the artwork. I gave it a shot because of that, and it's you know it's a fifty dollar game, so it's not like it's oh I'll spend ten bucks. I dropped well I dropped less because I have an employee discount, but still. <laughs> I dropped a fair a fair amount of money on this game based almost entirely off the art. So it, the premise sounds nifty, but there's a lot of games that have premises that sound nifty that look terrible and actually are terrible. This one, thankfully, plays well, too. This doesn't look beautiful. It, it is pretty, but it also plays pretty. I guess we should touch on uh, the reverse of that, too, where a game uh, just completely turns you off just just because of how it looks, you know? I mean, and this is just a personal opinion, but when I see, say, Ravensburger's Castles of Burgundy on the shelf, even though I know that's a great game, I don't want to buy that game. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it looks like it's a puzzle. <laughs> no, no thanks. Looks like a complex puzzle. <laughs> Yo, I, yeah. I, and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Brad. No, I, I want you to finish that thought because I, I was going to ask. Oh, you I was, was going to say that, that's a that's a big thing for me when it comes to selling the games is that they should have invested a bit more money into doing some decent artwork 
because sometimes they sometimes they have artwork that gives you a completely different idea of what the game is, and sometimes the artwork is if if you're going to go to to the expense of publishing a board game, which is no cheap feat, yeah, drop five six seven hundred dollars on a good piece of cover art, not the I know a guy who you know who did great art in high school, which <laughs> is you know better than I can do, but I mean there's I don't want to call it. I'm trying to think of a specific game, but I can't think of one right now. Oh, Damage Report. The art is. It's not like it's awful, but if you see it, it make because the art isn't that super flashy and nice. It makes you instantly think, well, the game's probably cheap and 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 not well made, but it's actually a pretty decent game. But you wouldn't know. But you know, because the cover turns people off initially, because it looks like something that was cheaply made because of that less than amazing artwork on the front. Is it bad that I feel that way about Agricola and Caverna and all those? <laughs> Mayfair well, pumps you, you out so many You can feel that way about Agricola because I hate Agricola. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and yeah, some of those games, it's it. And I mean, for I think when you get into some of the really hardcore games, uh, the, the heavier games like that, a lot more comes down to theme and and the designer. That's I mean, Agricola. That's Uwe uh, Rosen. Is it Rosenthal or whatever? Whatever, whoever it is. His name means something to some, a lot of people who are going to play buying that game. And that Cavern is a $90 game. So that's okay. not your casual buyer just picking it up and saying, ah, I'm going to buy this because it's got a poorly illustrated dwarf on the cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and then we're talking about a de- game designer fan base, which actually I'm a huge fan of that idea, you know? Like, uh, like a game designer as Rockstar. That sounds great. <laughs> sure, but uh, it's also really unrealistic for you know anyone but a select few that have lucked into being able to publish fifty games, you know, and have this big name for themselves uh, and have a following amongst, uh, particularly the crowd that wants to spend or can afford to spend ninety dollars on a board game, which is just that's not a big crowd. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. You know, I, I had a question in speaking of of that. In the process, and I want to use the process because you, Roland, worked with Glenn on doing the artwork for Mist Runner. What was the process that you, Glenn, took in communicating with Roland and Roland back with Glenn to get the right artwork to set the right mood, to, to illustrate the appropriate things for where this artwork was going to be? What process did you guys go through? Was it formal? Was it informal? I guess is my first question. And how did that system work? I, at least at least my point of view is I think it was fairly informal. Okay. Um, I think I had give, given Roland just a bit of a description of, of the creatures, like the races. And I, I think I showed him some of the existing art I had. But a lot of that was the I liked Roland's style, for one. And you can make a connection with people where you can tell that on certain areas you think a little similar. And that's kind of how I felt with Roland, just gauging, having, having played games with him, having worked with him, and having talked with him, and getting to know him, I, I could, and, and, see, and having seen some of his artwork, I could see that if I gave him this very basic outline, that he could take that and go with it and come up with something that, that fit into my worldview of what Mr. Runner, of what I wanted to be. And in some ways, he even 
changed a bit of the vision that, that I had and, and changed for the better uh, some, some, of, some of the ideas I had and, and, and made things look in ways I hadn't expected but th that I ended up liking. Okay. So I, I guess that's definitely something to touch on then because uh, I haven't had that particular experience and maybe uh, art can be a more important pro uh, part of that game design process in that way, you know? I, I mean, if you uh, bounce things back and forth and get the ball rolling with the whoever you're having do the art side of your game and, and some images come back and they affect how you feel about your game, how, what, what you're thinking. I, I guess for an RPG where there's so much flavor involved, you know, like there's yeah. so much setting, there's so much, there's so much text and, and all of this going on, I guess it's probably more pronounced there but um, than, than with a, a game that's very mechanically focused, I guess. I mean, I mean, not that RPGs aren't mechanically focused, just, I mean, you know, a game that's very tightly focused around the mechanics rather than there's that and then there's the story, you know what I mean? Sure. Oh, yeah. So, so you're saying, like, a game that is more... Where mood plays more of a of a role than necessarily the mechanics of the thing, that's where you think it shines more, or has more impact. Well, I, I'm I'm talking about during the design process. Uh, if, oh, if okay, a, okay, okay. If there's a game yeah. that's very focused on the setting, like an RPG, that's uh, very focused on uh, the flavor of it for the player, then if if you're sending stuff to the design team, whatever design team you have, like art design team, uh, and they're bouncing stuff back and you're seeing some preview images of the art and things like that, and that's changing uh, like how you feel about, say, a particular faction in your game. Uh, let, let's just like make up an example. Like I, I am a game designer and I'm coming up with a, a board game that's about battling uh, steampunk factions and uh, I send these ideas to the art team and they send back these images and there are some mutants in there. Well, shit, that's really cool. I'm going to put mutants in my game, right? So in that way, art could become a pretty integral part of the game design process, I guess. Now, let's say you were working with somebody who did not want to have their vision messed with. Like you submitted them mutants and they came back and said, "What that the never hell are you doing?" With artists. That never <laughs> happens. With artists. You know, and you have to come back and say, "Well, you know, that's that's really cool looking, but uh, that's not in the game." How? I mean, you're out your time then, Roland, as the artist. Oh yeah. Well, what? How, how does how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose you're getting more into the. The freelancer portion of that, the actual yeah. side of it, in in the process of, and I guess this kind of comes into layout. This following question here. Let's say you you ask for say twenty. I'm just going to go with a, a round number here. Twenty pieces of art, and when you get to the point where you're laying out your booklet and you've only got room for eighteen, and I guess this is a question for the both of you. Do you try to find a way to get those extra two pieces in, or do you do you do you throw it out? Do you throw Man, out those two pieces? That that would have been a problem I would have loved to have. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, as it is in my game, I actually recycle some of the art because I use almost every chapter end 
ends with one of a, a large full page uh, that Roland did. Okay. And I reuse smaller things of that later on in the book when I was talking about like specific people or factions and stuff like that because I didn't have enough art. And that, part of that is because my game was independently published and I had a, a pretty small budget to work with. Sure. And yep. I am, if somebody wants to volunteer to give me free art, <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that. And, and, and I had, I mean, our good friend Jeff did some of the art for Mist Runner that, that I got to use. And, I mean, but I, I don't feel comfortable asking someone, you know, you know, oh, well, hey, it's great exposure, you know. Oh, and, that'll get you punched in the face faster. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, <laughs> they're, they, they're doing this work. And on top of the fact that, I mean, now, if, if I wrote for, say, I mean, if I was publishing, you know, a book that was, you know, or, or an article for, like, Time Magazine, well, does Time even exist anymore? People Magazine. <laughs> and I said, you know, your photo will get exposure. Yes, they'll get exposure. That's great exposure, but I still expect to be paid for it. Yeah, I'm still doing the work. I think it's called Time People now, and it's about time. Time people. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but so, if if I had that excess art, if I had excess art and I knew I was doing nothing else for this product, I would try to make it fit. If if I felt it was all that good, otherwise I might. If I knew, well, I'm gonna be doing a source bus, uh, at least one source book for this. I'd save some of that art and, and pour it over for another thing where I think it would fit. Okay. But I like uh, art in game books. So no. I don't think there's such a thing as too much art in an RPG book. Yeah, I'll, I'll say from a graphic design standpoint, there's no way that you're going to have two extra pieces of art and not be able to fit that. <laughs> yeah. If you have, like, 100 extra pieces of art, well, we're talking about a different thing. That's going to turn into an art book that has an RPG in it. Sure. It actually sounds really cool. You guys want to kickstart that? Or? <laughs> we'll throw it out there. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> I, I'm going to throw this question out to you, Roland. Uh, how, can, how can art be used in RPGs as play aids? Oh, sure. Um, so, well, there's, there's the obvious flavor illustrations, uh, which I can, you know, it's describing more succinctly, perhaps, than our imaginations can conjure the various creatures and locales the players are visiting, and, and that's plenty important. Uh, it's not strictly necessary with some excellent writing, but it, it definitely makes things more fun. But then, uh, so there are, there are components, too, and I think the most important of these would probably be, like, the tiny plastic figurines that I love and that most folks use to represent their characters on a battle map. Also not necessary in most games. We talked about 5th edition. Uh, their default gameplay now is Theater of the Mind, which doesn't use any minis. But, you know, of course, good luck trying to play 4th without some minis. So that, <laughs> you know, that little mini makes you feel like a badass because you've got it on the board and it looks really cool. And when you do stuff, it does stuff, basically. So, you know, there, there's that. And then, of course, there's... Graphic design, the graphic design element, uh, which is basically in, in RPGs the character sheet. That's the the most important interface that the player has with the game. Uh, it's got all the info we need about our character. It shows us important built-in formulae and bonuses, and uh, uh, you definitely you had better hope that it is well designed or at least decently designed, or you are going to be spending a ton of time looking for various little 
uh, formulas and numbers and things like that instead of playing, which, you know, that's the whole point of the sheet is to keep you playing as quickly as possible, make sure that you have all that info, hope that your your DM doesn't tear it up when he kills you. <laughs> uh, but, but then there's also, uh, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, creative art aids, maybe you're talking about how other people can get creative and add, you know, like build stuff for their games, that kind of a thing. Sure. Um, and, and I've seen some really cool examples of this. One of the things that comes to mind are the, have you guys, uh, are, are you guys Penny Arcade fans? You, you check up on them at all? Uh, Every they, once in a while. Okay. Yeah, that's so, so they they've got a few graphic designers, and obviously they have an illustrator on staff. And when they when they do D and D stuff, I've seen them do some really cool things. Like their artist made for this one, there, there was a scenario where the characters would go from tiny elemental planet to tiny elemental planet, basically. And he made these things out of styrofoam balls. And he took these little pins and attached the minis to them so that you could be on the bottom of the ball, too, you know? So you have, like, a 3D spherical map. Okay. And that's, that's really awesome. Like, anything that both alters your experience of the gameplay, you know, by showing you this physical thing and kind of getting you into the world that way, also alters the mechanics like that. Okay. Like, different but similar setups like that for... Okay, so... Heroclix, not really an RPG, but it uses a very RPG-like battle system. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I, I've seen things for that and for similar games uh, where you have actual 3D terrain instead of a flat 2D map that has marked spaces that are uh, elevated or hindering or, you know, these various things. And, uh, and that totally changes the experience, too, and makes it more interesting. You can have a big tower and your line of sight is going to change depending on yeah. what level of that tower you're in. And so all of a sudden you need a ruler and it's Necromunda or Warhammer. Yeah. But, but still, I mean, <laughs> that's cool. That's, a, that's yeah. a, an awesome addition you can add to your RPG, all kinds of different things. But then the other example I thought of was uh, Visual Riddles. I've had that happen in a few games. You can come up with just these tiny little encounters and just kind of use them as modules in your game where, you know, you have, like, a, a match-three puzzle or you have a, a set of custom hieroglyphics or something like that that the players have to puzzle through in order to uh, get through an encounter. Or if they can't puzzle through it, then, you know, orcs attack or, you know, whatever. Whatever the penalty, the gameplay penalty is, you know. Okay. Any other ideas? <laughs> no, I think we've really kind of covered the gamut at this point. I mean, yeah. I, th I think that we've, we've, we've really kind of come to a consensus that dependent on the type of game, art can really either make or break it, that art is a very powerful tool to convey mood setting, perhaps goals, I mean, if you or, or functionality of, of certain mechanics... So, like, we were using the example of going through the spell book and what does web look like or something like that. And that design and layout is really, I think, more than anything else, is it will make or break a game. I come from the world of uh, web design, did graphic work before, then I got into web design and stuff like that, and really, design is everything. Layout is everything. 
if it's not done well, it's it's a mess that you can't follow. And if you're playing a game where you're spending minutes of your life to try to find enjoyment and you're wasting them because the layout isn't intuitive, it's a real pain in the ass to get into to try to figure out where things are supposed to go, how are things are supposed to function, that can make or break a game as well. And, and that definitely is a part yeah. of the art. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. We're going to wrap things up here. We're going to talk about uh, Hello, My Name Is. You can go to galacticnetcasts.com. That is the home of Adventure Party. And you can find the Adventure Party page. Click the Hello, My Name Is icon, and you can give us a write-up of your favorite character that you've enjoyed playing, the, the system that you played that character in and some details about that character and why it was so cool and why you enjoyed playing it. And if you do, we will feature you on a segment on the podcast and we'll talk about that character and send you a certificate suitable for framing stating that you were on the show. And I really want to take the time to uh, roll in for discussing the role of art in games. It's a very, it's a complex yet simple thing. And I think that really wraps up art, <laughs> definition of art. Its simplicity can be magnificent, and you know the magnificence can be in the simplicity. It can be as big of a thing as you want it to be or as minimalistic of a thing as you want to be, and you have to use the right approach for the right project. And that really, I think, is the role of a good artist to know how much is too much and the right way to approach a project. That really kind of shows the skill of an artist. And based on the stuff that I saw that you you did for Mist Runner, uh, Roland, you, you do good work. So. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and and Brad, Brad's one of the characters you drew. Oh, really? Which one? <laughs> yeah. Lord, Lord Rickard von Ludwig. Uh, tell me what it was. Uh, he, he was, was the fairy noble. Oh, very cool. Okay. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the hell out of that, too. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I would do this anytime. I had a blast. So. Cool. And, you know, as we go through and, and do these episodes, uh, I would like to reapproach art again. It's such a big part of, of especially RPGs and even more so probably with board games. And it, it's something that there are so many different topics that you can cover with it. And I would love to reapproach that again, and maybe even with a few other artists and really kind of throw things around and, and, and talk about art a little bit more in depth and, and cover another topic. I've got some ideas running around in my head, and uh, I'm going to write them down, and we'll come back and approach this again. I would love to have you back on again, Roland. Really you, would. You know what we need to talk about is uh, what Glenn's doing for his game. Yeah, and with, with card games especially, you know, the art will make or break something. I've seen some card games yeah. that seem to be really cool, and you look at the art, and you're like, oh, I wasted money on this. You know, it just, you don't feel like you got the value for the amount of money you laid down for it. So, um, no, I, definitely, definitely, we need to come back to this. I'd love to. So, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Roland. I really appreciate it. Uh, you can find the Adventure Party. Uh, by going to galacticnetcasts.com and there you can find us on all of our social media outlets. We're on uh, YouTube. Uh, we record this live. We seem to be doing more Sundays than Saturdays, but typically we try to do this on Saturday at 9 p.m. Central and you can check us out live and we are also on iTunes and Stitcher. If you would, take a moment to give us a recommendation. Let us know what you think. We just were looking to kind of grow the adventure party and, and get things out there. And the best way to do that is give us a review. 
positive, negative, if you think there's something we need to change or improve, we'd love to hear it. The show is about, it's about everybody who enjoys games and gaming. So please let us know uh, what you think, and we will uh, shape and, and change things and, and evolve as we go along. Uh, you can also leave us feedback by emailing galacticnetcasts at gmail.com, or you can call or text the number 805-328-3966 if you text us, depending on how you're... So, uh, so oh my God, my brain is completely... Yes, your, how your cellular coverage is set up. I do, my brain is just shut off. There's a lightning storm going on, and I'm just... Text may cost you money. Different it, prices. It, it, it will cost you money, but it, maybe just a little. It, it could cost things <laughs> and stuff, depending on what kind of package you got. <laughs> I'm awful. Uh, the other thing, too, is while you're on galacticnetcasts.com, we do have a way that you can do it without a phone. There is an icon on the right side of the page in which you can click, and if you have a microphone connected to your computer, you can just drop us a message right on the website, and it will shoot that out to myself and uh, other people that, that work on uh, the Adventure Party, and it will save the MP3 file, and we can go over your message, play it back, talk about it. We'd love to do so. So I want to thank everybody for joining the... Oh, you know, before we wrap things up, I'm going to do something that I should have done a long time ago. Uh, Roland, if people yes. want to get a hold of you, find more out about oh, your yes. artwork, do you have a place that you want to push people to to see your work? Oh, yes, I do. You can go to rolandkunz.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-K-U-N-Z.com. Or you can go to Facebook slash rolandkunz.art. And uh, either of those will set you up. Currently working on playtests for Heavenly Immortal Monkey King. I am definitely going to open it up into public beta and just give out free copies to people that want to playtest it very soon. So uh, do that. If you want to be a part of that, just send me a message on Facebook. Just like it on Facebook. You'll get the info. So Nice. And come see me and Roland at Gen Con. We'll have our games yeah. there. Yeah, oh, you can come sweet. play test in person. You can meet us and see our pretty faces. So we can, <laughs> we, can we can try out both of your games. Is that what you're saying? Are you gonna play test Apocalypse How? As yes. Well at Gen Con. Okay. I, I have to. I should. Yeah, you better, and uh, <laughs> and you also better start talking to me about uh, making art for it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Mister. Get on that. That game isn't gonna make itself, sir. You are going to make that game. I wish it would. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I want to thank everybody for joining the Adventure Party. And may your characters never die and your adventures always be epic. Thank you so much. You have been listening to a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. For more about the show you just listened to, including how to subscribe, give us feedback, links to our social feeds, and more, please visit www.GalacticNetcasts.com. <laughs>